Good evening, brothers and sisters. I'm glad to once again be here to have the privilege, though undue privilege to, but to nonetheless the privilege to preach the word of God to his people. And so, as we get into our text today, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 17, I would like to begin with our context. Last week, if you were here, you heard Brother Sergi preach on 1 Corinthians 3, 10, 10 through 13. We saw that Paul tells the Corinthian church that they were letting pride, jealousy, and strife tear down their church, and that he was given grace to be a builder of the church. He tells them that they needed to be careful of how they are to build Christ's church, because they also are builders of the church. Any true believer is Christ's construction worker, called to build the church through the grace and gifts given to each one of us. We can only build upon one foundation, though. That foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Paul tells them they can build out of gold, silver, precious stones, or they can build out of wood, hay, or stubble. They can either build out of materials that will stand the test of time, that are quality materials, or they can build out of materials that will crumble in a short amount of time, that won't add to this structural, structural integrity of this building and won't make it beautiful. He, sees that, he says that God will test our works. He says that he will test the quality of our works to see whether this what we did with our lives, truly built his church to be a temple. And so, let us read our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If, anyone wor if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We hear, we first see this passage in verse 14. We get a, what should be a big and scary if. We know, we know Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, the passage where Jesus says, Be gone, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That should be the scariest passage, right? To those who play religion, those who put on a face, those who pretend and try to work for their favor before God. That should be the scariest passage to them. But this passage, I think, should be one of the scariest to true believers. Because Paul says in the beginning here, he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he says, if. The scary thing for us Christians should be 
the prospect of standing before our maker and having nothing to show of all of our efforts but a pile of ash. We know that people can live false lives, right? We know that people come to the church and pretend. We, they are part of the visible church. They come, we see them. They come here, they make profession, but they are not part of the invisible church, the body of true believers. We have a mixture of people here when we gather. We have believers and unbelievers. But we, we know that a child can grow up in the church, sing with everyone during congregational singing. They can hear all the sermons, never miss a service, sing in one or more choirs. They can come to every prayer meeting and die without having Christ and without being saved, wasting their lives. Verse 14 is scary because it implies that our lives can be unproductive even as, unbelie- even as believers. It shows Christians can still be screw-ups and be saved. No slave of Christ wants that, though. We, want, we can be believers and waste our lives on, on business and material gain that was not Christ-glorifying. It means we can waste away hours in this very building and spend away church funds for things that were of no consequence and things that will not last. Just because we do something in this church building does not mean it automatically has eternal impact. And we must realize that. We can be a Christian all our lives and have nothing to show for it the end of our lives here on earth. Paul says that, we can come before Christ with our works of wood, hay, and straw and have it be burnt up and it won't stand. Just because we throw, right, the name of Jesus into what we do doesn't mean we're doing something of worth or impact. And that's scary thought. You know, we can, we can think about this in terms of, right, like assignment at school or work. We can be given an assignment. We can, we can spend hours researching, spend all-nighters, many long nights working on this project to turn it in and it comes back as a zero. And the only comment is, this is not what I asked you to do. You got the assignment wrong. That's a scary thought to have that be what happens when we stand before our maker. No one wants to be in that position before God. And so Paul tells us to take care how we build the church. Our works must be robust, built the right way, on the right foundation in order to have this eternal impact. Right? Paul said before, we need things that are built out of gold, silver, precious stones, things that last centuries. People dig up coins, gold coins, ornaments, things that were made out of gold, silver, precious stones to this day, and it's fine. Gold and silver, they don't tar- gold doesn't tarnish easily. It stands and it, it holds its luster for many years. But things that are built of wood, when they excavate, are rarely ever found. Why? Because they rot away. They don't stand the test of time. What we do for God must be Christ-centered. It must be helping people to more deeply know Christ. And we must truly reflect Christ to those around us. That is what it means to be Christ-centered. We must be gospel-centered. We must clearly and often be telling others of what Christ, the God-man, did when he came to this earth, what he accomplished on our behalf. 
We must be scripture-centered. We must read scripture, pray scripture, sing scripture, preach scripture so that we can be thoroughly equipped to obey scripture and to do what pleases God. That must be our goal and our center no matter what we do, from the least to the greatest, within these walls or without of these walls. That is our mission, our goal. That is our duty. Second point we can see is in the second half of verse 14, Paul says that, he says, if the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So our, our work may not survive, but he says the work that survives for that person who built that work, they will receive a reward. If we obey and do the works prepared for us beforehand, we will receive a reward at the end. Please open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 8 through 10. You may know it, but I would like to read it regardless so that it is imprinted on our minds a little clearer. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It has always been a part of God's plan since before he created that God's people would work, do works that he has prepared for them, that he has revealed in scriptures, do good works, God-glorifying works, works that will build his church and help our fellow man. And this is what he calls us to do. This is his plan for us. We are not to be idle and we are not to work lazily or of low quality. We are to build and do, build work out of gold, silver, precious stones, things that cost a lot, things that have value, not things we can get easily. If, and there is a purpose to why we do this. Paul even later says in Ephesians 4, I'll read Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 13. Paul says that there is a purpose to all of this. He says, and he gave to the he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. The purpose of all of this, of the gifts that God has given us, the resources God has given us, the blessings, all of this is to build the church. All this is to build the church that spreads his gospel to every nation, to every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. This is our purpose. When we obey scripture, build a church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, 
using those God-given talents, not hiding them, as the parable Jesus said, the one who hid his, par- his talent, the king came and asked of him a report. What did you do with this? If we don't hide them, we use them according to scripture, commands of God, we have a reward. And that is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing that we have a God who would give rewards to us who simply do what is owed to him. We don't deserve a single one of these rewards. We don't deserve to be saved. He could have saved us, called us to do this work, which we would have rightly had to do, and had no rewards in the end. That would have been fair. But he still gives us rewards. What an amazing God we have, who would even go so far as to give us that kind of a grace. Rewards are great. I think we all love rewards. But rewards are one of the motivations for our work, but they are not that primary motivation. We all know the primary motivation is to glorify our God. It's not necessarily wrong to work for our rewards as long as it is put in its proper place. And to see that clearly, I would like to uh, ask you to open with me to Revelation chapter 4. And read verses 9 through 11. Revelation chapter 4. And we'll read verses 9 through 11. John writes and he says, And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 angels, the 24 elders, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The particular section I want us to look at is that end of verse chapter 10 when he says and they cast their crowns before the throne there are a few instances in the bible that 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 show crowns as being the rewards god gives to people Um, there are a few instances like that one that clearly comes to mind that is along along that vein is james 112 where he says blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he is tried he will receive the crown of life that the lord has promised to them that love him matthew henry spurgeon's favorite commentator said concerning this passage these words he said they cast their crowns before the throne they gave god the glory of the holiness wherewith he had crowned their souls on earth and the honor and happiness which, we, which he crowns them in heaven. They owe all their graces and all their glories to him and acknowledge that, he, that his crown is infinitely more glorious than theirs and that it is their glory to be glorifying God. That is our greatest motivation. We can, motiv- we can be motivated to get rewards as long as we understand here that it will glorify God when we take these rewards given, cast them back at his feet, for they are all 
only, only given to us because he works through us. If you, if you remember Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes in those passages, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Nothing is that we do, we are able to do without the power and grace of Christ working in through us. And that is why we will cast our crowns before his feet, our cast these rewards back at his feet when he is done working, working these works through us. We see back in our passage in verse 15 that after Paul has said, your works may not last, your works may be burned by fire, but if they're not, you will receive a reward. In verse 15 he says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. If anyone's work is burned up, that leads us to a question, I, I think. What will happen to me if I find myself at the end of all things, standing before the Ancient of Days, before the Lord who told us what we were supposed to do? What happens to me when I stand before him with nothing left but the ashes of our wasted efforts and empty pursuits when the consuming fire that is our God is done testing my works? What happens what happens to me? He says he will suffer loss. We suffer loss if we are in this case. We suffer the loss of rewards that are glorifying to God. We suffer the loss of crowns, the loss of rewards. We will suffer the loss of being able, right, to cast more crowns at the feet of our master. That is a sad place to be. But, but the good news of the gospel is that by the grace of God, of the merciful God, this does not mean we lose our salvation. Whether we have a lot of good works or a lack of any works, this doesn't earn or lose our position before our God. We can spend right every waking moment of our lives doing countless good things like feeding the hungry, buying clothes for the poor, visiting the elderly, teaching kids the Bible, driving people to church who don't have cars, encouraging those who have lost loved ones. And we can do all of this and more, whatever you can think of, and earn zero favor in the sight of God if we do not have faith in Christ. But the good news is that a pile of works that have been burned to ash can't make you lose your favor with God if you are in Christ. For our salvation is not based upon works, for we are justified by faith alone. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Turn with me to this glorious passage, this climax of a passage where Paul says that, that, that sinners, all sinners are just as they say, utterly sinful. There's nothing good, right? No one righteous, no one understands God. But at the end of all of this, he brings in the gospel and he says in verses 27 through 28, after saying the gospel, he says, 
then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of a law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And again, he goes in the next chapter, bringing up examples like David and Abraham, showing how, how they were justified, not based on their works. And he says in Romans 4, verses 4 through 8, he brings up this example and he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. What a blessed state to be in, to know that our works do not change our standing before our God, since most of our works are but sinful striving, sinful man-pleasing, or just sinful works to please ourselves. That is most of what our works is. If I look at my life, that's what I see most of my works are. But that good news of the gospel is that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that can only have been accomplished because Christ, the one who died for his church, he took on this body. He came to this earth and did the things we could not do. He obeyed every single sentence, every single word of God's law. All 613's law, 613 laws given to Moses in the Old Testament. And more, he, he fulfilled all of them. And while he was hanging on that cross as a substitute for sinners, he bore the sins of sinners so that he could give that great exchange, take on sin on himself, so that he could give his righteousness to us all those perfect works that he did, that perfect law-keeping, so that could be given to us. So that we stand before God, whether with zero works, with a pile of ash, or with gold, silver, and precious stones, no matter what, we will stand before God justified. And he grants that gift of grace to all who repent and believe in him and what he has done. But this is not an excuse to avoid the work we are called to do. If your thoughts immediately go to, oh good, that means I can do nothing and still be saved, then by all means, doubt your salvation. Because that is not what a saved person does. When we see Paul writing about all this, when we see what do, what do we want to do? God has written, if we remember in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we are saved by grace through faith, right? N not, not of ourselves, so not so we boast, but so that we work. So that we work to the glory of his name. Because he created us. He, we are his workmanship. And he says, go and do likewise. Go and work. Just as I have created you, go and do more works. This truth should be a comfort to those like the thief on the cross who at the last moments realized that they spent a life wasted and will stand before their maker. And yet, and yet they are comforted by the God who says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
because we are justified not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we get to verse 16, and when I first start, got this passage, I didn't see how verses 16 and 17 related to this whole topic. How does this relate to the building of this church? How does this relate to taking care of how we build the church? But it's much more connected than, than I first initially thought. And verse 16 states, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What this passage tells us is the church is what's being built here. It's not a random group of people. It's not a random building. Ever since verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says that, that he and the other apostles, him and Apollos, they've been, they've been planting, they've been watering, they've been building up this church. And in 10 through 13, he says that he is this builder of the church and that we are fellow builders meant to build it up. Use gold, silver, precious stones. And here he says, the church, this is what's being built up. And he wants us to clearly see what the church is. And that is God's holy temple. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. We need to build out of gold, silver, and precious stones so that we can build the church to be this glorious temple of God. Remember back to the Old Testament when, when, when Solomon builds his temple or when the tabernacle is built. So many people bring gold, the finest materials they have, to build this building so that is glorious, representing of a true building deserving to have the presence of God dwell in it. We are building a temple. We're not building a random building. We're not building a random group of people. This is Christ's bride that we are building and God employs us ordaining these fruitful works to build his church which is that temple we know the old testament is a shadow of what was to be of what was to come in the new covenant the sacrifices were a shadow of Christ's sacrifice this beautiful fuller richer fulfillment and that old testament temple was a shadow of what the church is it is a bigger, more glorious thing than that physical building that Solomon built thousands of years ago with all that physical gold laid over it, all of those carvings of cherubim and pomegranates and anything under the sun that it was built out of. The church is bigger. The church is brighter. The church is more glorious than that temple. And that is what he wants us to see here. This is why we must take care how we build the church, for it is God's temple we are building the church, which is Christ's own body, his own bride, which he loves more than any other woman. This is the people in whom God, the Holy Spirit himself, dwells in. God dwells within us and in our midst. He, he makes us this temple. That's why we are to build ourselves. That's why we strive towards holiness. That is why we are to encourage one another, build one another out of gold, silver, precious stones. These works, these works that will last and stand the test of time because we are a temple built to hold God. The church can only be built up to be this holy building that, display, that displays God's glory and his holiness 
through that faithful building on the person and work of Jesus Christ, on the gospel, on the scriptures that reveal this person, that reveal this work. That is what we are striving towards. This is what God has mandated for us, to go and build this church. And verse 17 Verse 17 is another one of those passages that should be scary to unbelievers or to those who oppose the church because he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Don't attempt to interfere or destroy the building of the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ or else... We see here that he says, or else I will destroy you. If we look back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 7. Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 7. We'll see a, a great condemnation Christ gives to those who attempt to destroy one of his little children. And the context of that passage is the disciples are to be like children in a certain way, humble. And that's what he says here in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Christ treats an attack on his people, his church, seriously. Where He says, you would rather drown yourself than mess with my bride. God does not tolerate anyone interfering, messing with his bride in any way. But he also doesn't tolerate anyone messing with his great commission that he has given to the church for us to accomplish. The last passage I would like you to turn with me to is psalm 2 psalm chapter 2 and since it's a short psalm i want to read the whole thing for i think it is a very powerful psalm read psalm 2 with me why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here we see what Christ says to the nations who attempt to stifle the church. He says, you will be destroyed. He laughs at their attempts. For the church stands over these 2,000 years when nations have rised and fall and fell who have went against his church. 
We see in Revelation that picture of those kings who ran from the Lamb who sat on the throne. And they, tried, and they asked the mountains to rain down on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, but they could not. There's many examples in church history we can look to, to nations who attempted to destroy God's people. That Roman Empire that persecuted them in that first few hundred years was overcame by this religion and then destroyed later on. The Muslims that tried to overtake the Christian world, they eventually failed. In modern history, we look to these communist regimes, the Soviet Union that our parents came out of who tried to destroy the church and now it sits buried in the grave, no longer existing. The church stands while nations rise and fall who attempt to hinder God's people and God's work being done throughout the world. For we see that in the Psalm 2, he says the nations are Christ's inheritance. All the nations will be his. He will conquer them. Every Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people will be his. The coastlands wait for his law, and they will hear it. For his preaching will go to every corner of this earth, and he will be victorious. Not these nations, not the world, for they will submit to him, or else he will destroy them. Remember the Babylonians who destroyed that physical temple? God destroyed them before even a hundred years had passed. Conquered by another, another conflicting empire who who conquered them without even a struggle, that great city of Babylon, pretty easily. And if he treats his physical temple in that way and see how he cares for his fulfilled, that fulfillment of that Old Testament shadow of the temple in his church, he cares for it so much more. Don't mess with the building of Christ's church or its mission, for it is a matter of time before you will be destroyed. And so before we pray, I want to give three points of application for us. Take great care to make sure you aren't wasting your precious, God-given talents, time, strength, effort, and resources on pursuits that will never amount to anything just because something is done in these Inside these walls doesn't mean it will be fruitful. Ask yourself, why am I in the ministries that I'm a part of? Or maybe why am I not a part of ministries, any ministries? What do I do for the glory of God? Why am I in these ministries? Am I helping or hindering these ministries? We see what Christ does to those who hinder his ministry. Am I hindering Christ's work within these, these ministries that I'm doing? Am I stopping it from being more glorious and better? Am I stopping it from more clearly preaching the glory of God? Am I stopping it from being a better example of that holy temple, that body fitly joined together, a multiple parts but one united whole? Ask yourself these things and see why, what you are doing. Why are you doing it? Lest we come to Christ with just wood, hay, and stubble and straw. Point number two, in light of all this, our worst mistakes, our most wasted opportunities, our most misguided pursuits, our most fruitless periods of life, all of our striving after the wind and our greatest sins cannot separate us from the source of our forgiveness and eternal life, which is Jesus Christ. All of that ash from our wasted life is not more powerful than the blood of Christ. 
when you sit there like I have and have been overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, by, the, by analyzing your life and seeing that most of your works are nothing but ash. Remember that Christ is more powerful than our works. When last September, when I got to join a group of people from our youth going to a conference in, in Atlanta, Georgia, centered on Christ, preaching solely about who is Christ. I was feeling the weight of my sinfulness, countless inadequacies, when I felt like all my sins were just, just too, too much to be God-glorifying, too much to have my life be something meaningful to the glory of God, along with being convicted by that, that preaching by many great men of God. All of that, on that Sunday after that conference, we went to this, to this church, much smaller than our own, but an amazing song they sang there that is of great encouragement. And this song is called, Thy Works, Not Mine, O Christ. And, and, and the verses go, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done, and they bid my fear depart. Thy wounds, not mine, O Christ, can heal my bruised soul. Thy stripes, not mine, contain the balm that makes me whole. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne that crushing load of sins that none could bear but the incarnate God. Thy death, not mine, O Christ, has paid that ransom due. Ten thousand deaths like mine would have been all too few. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails, save that which is of thee. Amazing words that point us that all of this, all of, none of what is in us, but solely all that comes from Christ is our foundation for our standing before God. Let that truth be what we run to in moments when, when we see our lives where we see all of that ash, all of that missed opportunities in our lives where we did not preach the gospel, where we did not serve his church, we were not building up his church. And the last thing I want to say before I call us all to pray is that we still have time to build this cathedral that is Christ's people through these God-glorifying works out of gold, silver, and precious stones, on top of these ashes of our past mistakes, failures, and our inconsequential pursuits. Our dear Lord and Savior has not yet returned. Christ is still conquering the nations. His kingdom is not yet fully complete. The last enemy has not yet been defeated. So take heart. God has granted us a grace in this moment to redeem our time for his glory. For we still have time to work. Look back at your past mistakes. Looking back at our past mistakes can be so stifling and arrest our work for him. So look to Christ who is still coming, who has not yet returned, and run towards him as you do those works that build his church and that build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the gospel that preaches that, that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has washed it and made it white as snow. Let us take heart and be encouraged with these words that we have time to still serve our God, heap rewards that will glorify him. And so I will call you all to kneel and pray, and I will conclude. Please, anyone who wants to pray, let us pray to God.